0: and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics, politics, and policy podcast from Aberdeen. I'm your host, Stephanie Kelly, and this week, it's part two of our series looking at the impact of Omicron and other global shocks on the economic and policy environment for investors. So last week, we talked about Omicron, supply chains, China. This week's we're going to be exploring how major developed central banks are likely to behave this year as they grapple with these really significant reopening pressures, shifting labor markets, and the broader inflation picture. So to help me explore all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host and monetary policy expert, Luke Bartholomew. Hey, Luke.
1: Hey, Steph. How's it going?
0: Thank you very much for joining. And Deputy Chief Economist and US expert, James McCann. Hey, James. Hey, thank you for having me. Great to have you. So let's jump right into it. And we're going to have to start with those jobs numbers in the US last week. We had some I would say pretty surprising numbers come out of the US labour market last Friday. James, could you talk through why was it such a surprise to investors and probably to central bankers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say the surprise probably came through, through two channels. One was just the sheer strength of jobs growth in January. We know that the US has been going through an Omicron wave. We know that has, by an order of magnitude, smashed the the number of COVID cases, unfortunately, that people have been going through. And I think the expectation and consensus in broader central banking communities was that this would weigh on activity, albeit perhaps over a relatively short period of time, but that we should expect a disrupted labour market port. And what we got was nearly half a million jobs, much, much stronger in the short term than uh, expected. And then the other aspect of the report, I think, was interesting, um, but also threw a lot of noise into, into things, was that there were huge revisions. So we had upward revisions to the last two months data of around 700,000 jobs. We had big revisions to the, to the labour force estimates as well. So really it creates this sense that there's a lot of noise in the payrolls numbers, but also that the near-term picture is looking quite a lot stronger than people would have expected absent the, the Omicron wave.
0: So I think that's, I mean, the obvious question is like, why has this happened? How can this happen to see these kind of revisions?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's probably two two factors. Again, I keep leaning on two two things to expect. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably say that the first is that this is part of the benchmark revision. So it's normal that at this time of the year, the BLS take into account other data sources which tell them something about the state of the labor market, the size of the civilian population, they're able to incorporate other data sources, and they do so at this time of the year to get them a fuller picture of the labor market. So that's a normal process, and so we normally get some revisions that change the picture of the labor market a little bit in early, um, in, in, in January. The other issue that you've got, though, probably too, is that the pandemic just did extraordinary things to, to the labour market in terms of job losses at certain times of the year. You wouldn't expect to see job losses, uh, interruptions across sectors that look quite different, be it in the service sector or other sectors which had fewer pandemic restrictions as well. And that's really affected the seasonal adjustments. And that's what the BLS adjusted this time of year as year two. So when it seasonally adjusts its data, what it's found through the pandemic is there's been a huge amount of noise, and a good example is you know around school closures and what that's done to, 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 to employment in the education sector. That's really recaptured with the seasonals, and they've tried to to amend that a little bit to better capture what's happening in terms of real time labour market hiring and firing decisions.
0: So. I guess the natural question then is: Do these revisions, not only obviously the upside surprise, but the prior revisions, do they change any of your priors around how you're thinking about the outlook for the U.S. economy, and how do you think that this will factor into the way that I know we're going to go into the specifics of of Fed policy and other central banks? But do you think that this change is meaningful for them as well?
2: Yeah, I, I think yes. on probably probably both counts. I mean, not not enormously, but I think. You know, the, the message that I probably take, and I think that watchers of the Fed will take, will be that this is still a labour market that is, you know, in very, very robust shape. So, if we look between the details, there are signs of the Omicron crisis there, we certainly see that hours worked in some affected sectors have, have dropped. And that probably reflects a degree of absenteeism as people have been unwell. Uh, we see one or two signs within um, within the details of report about people not being able to work or, or their employer closing for, for periods of time during during January. So there are some signs there, but you know that really sort of says to me, how strong would if this report being absent the Omicron wave and as we see cases recede, you know, certainly it makes me realized well Confident that the strength of the labor market will persist. And the final point might be that you know, when we look at the, the the spread of the virus and the impact it's had, you know, certainly this makes me maybe a little more confident that the economy is becoming increasingly resistant um, to, to, to outbreaks. If we go back, obviously, the first wave of cases in 2020 was hugely disruptive and we've had subsequent waves each one of those has had a lower impact and there's you know good public health responses and epidemiology reasons to try and explain that but i think the fed will be looking at it and thinking it's judgment that this would induce some short-term volatility but not really do serious damage to the economy probably feels about right
0: yeah. So hopefully, hopefully, you know, signs of, of green shoots and particularly for those of us who I think are most people hoping that, that this pandemic kind of takes, you know, the next step becomes a little bit more normalization again. I mean, Luke, can I bring you in here in terms of maybe if you think about the outlook for central banks, I mean, how much are labor markets in, you know, beyond the United States acting as an important constraint or incentive for central banks, say, in Europe and the UK?
1: I think they're key to their thinking. And I mean, there are quite important cross-country differences that relate to different viral experiences, different public health responses, different macro policy responses, different labour market institutions. It's mean that, you know, there are slightly different cross-country differences in, in, in what we're seeing. But the broad picture is that both for the Eurozone as a whole and the UK, that the dynamics are quite similar to the ones that James described for the US, that we are seeing very robust demand for labor at the same time that there seems to have been this negative shock to labor supply, which means that labor markets are extremely tight at the moment. And generally, that's that's a good thing. I mean, probably the problem that we've mm-hmm. had for much of the post-crisis period is that we've had probably persistently weak labor markets and we could have could have run the economy hotter and, and, and could have had tight labor markets. But what you get with tight labor markets is stronger wage growth. And we might be getting to a point that in some countries getting a level of wage growth that's simply not consistent with meeting inflation mandates over time. And I think that is what's going to bring central banks into play big time.
0: Right. Right, absolutely. And I did feel like for a very long time we were looking for these things to happen and then a classic for markets, once it actually starts to happen, it becomes a, bit of a, a source of concern for, for other reasons. So beyond labor markets, what are the other things that you think policymakers, particularly outside the US, are gonna be looking to at the moment for key signals. And obviously there's huge political and voter interest in the question of energy markets and energy prices. But are those the kind of things that are gonna weigh on on an ECB or a, or a BOE policymaker thinking about the path forward?
1: so traditionally energy price shocks are sort of paradigmatically those kind of shocks that central banks can quote unquote look through which is to say they take it as a temporary shock away from their inflation target but they don't set policy to respond to that and that's partly because a you know you would expect these kind of shocks to be one-off sort of level price shocks and you know in time it's just as likely that an upward commodity price shock could be met with a downward one and these things sort of drop out and take care of themselves. And the other, of course, is that monetary policy acts with very long lags. And if you start tightening policy today for an energy price shock you see today, well, that's not really going to start affecting the economy for, say, 18 months down the road, by which point you'd expect that energy shock to have long since dropped out the inflation data. So you're sort of like by setting policy for that shock today, you're ending up affecting a future world where it isn't really a problem now there are right. sort of like nuances around that in terms of like uh, how you sort of think about those trade-offs how quickly you want to bring uh the shock back to target and if it's so extremely large or well, maybe you have to start um thinking about a policy response but i think the most important caveat is that this sort of look through it response is all conditioned On the idea that inflation expectations are well anchored and that in time inflation will fall back to target precisely because those expectations are in the right place and the shock doesn't drag them higher. So the key question right now and the reason why these energy price shocks might be a little bit more important than sort of that paradigmatic textbook case is just because inflation expectations seem to be drifting higher at the same time. So maybe because of this labor market tightness, the energy price shock does sort of count for a bit more because of what it might do to expectations.
0: And that, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, right? Where are inflation expectations at the moment as you see them? I mean, obviously, you kind of mentioned there, there's some upward pressure. Is there, you know, is there a threshold at which you'd be more concerned? Or, or do you think that this is just a, you, I guess, do you think it's appropriate the level of inflation concern and, and, and where inflation expectations are today?
1: So short-term inflation expectations have moved uh, a lot higher recently. But those kind of Mm -hmm. things tend to sort of lag rather than lead inflation. They sort of just follow where inflation has been, and in particular, where energy prices have been. So in some sense, it's not really surprising that those have been dragged higher. I think much more interesting and potentially concerning for central banks is what's happening to medium and long-term inflation expectations. We tend to put much more weight on those as actually having forward-looking content. Those are the kind of things that get built into wage and price-setting arrangements. And there is evidence that those have moved somewhat higher. Now, granted, in the Eurozone, we were sort of starting from a place where, if anything, inflation expectations were too low. The, the problem that the ECB had battled for a very long time was, was frankly, that expectations become unanchored on the downside. So some upward pressure there isn't necessarily a bad thing. But speaking for the UK, for example, I think think it is pretty clear now that most measures of inflation expectations, and again, like these aren't a clean thing to measure. You have to sort of pull in surveys from various different sources, market prices. But generally, there is a sense that sort of the kind of numbers that you would think, or at least traditionally, have been consistent with inflation at a target, what we're looking at now is numbers a bit higher than that. And that has sort of what what has sort of triggered some of the concern from the Bank of England. And they worry that this is going to, you know, not at wage price spiral levels, but at the very least start to be embedded and get that much harder to squeeze out.
0: Right. OK, well, I think that's I mean a useful place to start then to think about what central banks are actually likely to do. And in particular, you know, we didn't actually talk, obviously last time we talked a lot about China and where China fits in. So one last question to you, Luke, before we get on to to central bank and prognosticating (laughs) predictions, dangerous world, is how supply chain issues in China are likely to if at all affect the way central bankers in the west think about the pressures that they face
1: so i think again traditionally those sort of supply chain shocks would fall into the same bucket as the energy right. price shocks i talked about the kind of things that you'd look through you think of as temporary there's not really reason to think they continue to put upward pressure on prices over mm-hmm. horizon where monetary policy changes today have would have any effect and moreover A fair bit of it could just be relative price changes rather than sort of fundamental changes to the inflationary process. So in theory, the kind of thing that they should be able to look through but again, the key question is as long as expectations stay anchored and the concern right. would be that it's just another bit of that perfect storm. I mean, you've got the underlying wage pressure building. You've now got the energy price shocks. You've got the sort of the supply chain shocks that looked like they were being fixed. But now maybe that's exacerbated and takes a little bit longer because of Omicron. So it's just another reason to worry about what might happen to inflation expectations rather than necessarily something that central banks can deal with directly I mean it isn't like central banks can print more you know semiconductors or reduce <laughs> shipping times themselves right but they might yeah. be able to keep inflation expectations anchored over the medium term as long as they credibly demonstrate commitment to their targets.
0: Sure that means, I mean that makes a lot of sense. So let's bring it all together and, and James coming back to you on the Fed, what can the Fed do in this context to affect the inflation outlook?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, following on from, from Luke's comments, they, they can affect this through a few channels. One, and admittedly, it's one that comes with a lag, is they can they can try and influence the demand side of, of the economy. We know that they can't affect poor closes or the physical supply constraints that are pushing up a range of good prices at home and, and abroad, be it through the energy channel or through those good shortages. But if they think part of the problem is that there's a an issue with an excess of 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 of, of demand over supply, they, they can dampen that that demand side, and they can do that through starting a, a policy adjustment. And then, totally agree, the second is that they can start calming expectations or preventing expectations from becoming unanchored, and by doing so, by showing that they will act in a credible way around around their inflation target. And in some ways, they've they've already started this process, even though they haven't actually really tightened policy as, yes, we've seen a very significant, you know, shift in the Fed's forward guidance. If we just think back to this time next last year, the Fed was saying that it wouldn't tighten rates out to the end of, of 2023. At the Fed meeting just recently in, in January, I think power is pretty open that the Fed wants to tighten in March. So that's a really you know, significant migration. And you see that already, you know, what's embedded around Fed expectations in market interest rates, the two-year, even since September is up more than 100 basis points. The 10-year, not quite that much, but fairly significantly too. So the Fed, already through its guidance, is telling us that policy is going to be tighter, and the market is already reacting in a way. You know, and that that change in the interest rate structure should be one that you know feeds into overall monetary financial conditions and affects growth, inflation, albeit as we've mentioned with with lags, but also provides a degree of credibility around how the Fed sees its inflation targets.
0: Sure, and so in that context, obviously, as you said, they've set the scene. What are you expecting by way of rate hikes in the coming year?
2: Absolutely. So, the Fed told us back in December they they thought, according to the median dot, so the median member on the FOMC, it'd be right to raise rates by by three three times this this year. I think the messages coming out of the January meeting, or that they didn't update those dots, were, were more hawkish and probably illustrative of a Fed that shifted in a, a more aggressive direction. At the moment, we're currently saying they'll hike rates four times. That's roughly once every every other meeting. I have to say, my my sense is that actually the risks are very clearly drifting towards them having to do to do more and hiking at nearly almost every every meeting. So it could be that they hike five or, or six times this year, just given the fact that. That short-term inflation dynamic does seem to be very pronounced. There are risks to that from from the COVID shock, and the labor market seems to continue to be very strong. So there's a chance that they front load a little bit more and do more sooner um, than than the four interest rate hikes that we've currently got penciled in. I think the interesting point will be as well, not just how quickly they go, it's where they stop. I think the market has a relatively benign view of the Fed stopping at you know, relatively low terminal rate, so end rate for the Fed funds peaking somewhere between one5 and 2%. You know, there's a real risk that if inflation doesn't slow this year, then the Fed feels it needs to you know, significantly overshoot that because it, again, has to clamp down both on the demand side, but also to keep inflation expectations in check.
0: Right, right. I think that's that's a super, super useful summary of, of the rates outlook. And then what else do they have in the armory? Can you explain a bit where the whole QE and balance sheet runoff come in in this?
2: Absolutely. did. The Fed, I think, is of a mind to to reduce the size of its balance sheet. We know that through quantitative easing, it buys assets, um, public sector assets, government bonds, and private sector assets, mortgage-backed securities. And it holds them, and it knows that those influence interest rates on a longer term horizon. So if it buys across the yield curve and it knows that that's a tool it can use a long time, a long time alongside its short-term interest rate to influence broader financial conditions and, and interest rates at longer durations. Now it's sat with a balance sheet of nearly $9 trillion, obviously extraordinarily large. It's signaled that it would like to reduce the size of that balance sheet and it would like to do so earlier and sooner than it did so in the 2010s after its, as it started its previous tightening cycle. So I think that's a clear sign that the Fed maybe moved a little bit more aggressively in unwinding that quantitative easing. But I think very much the Fed is going to want to still have that process on, on autopilot. I think it's, it's fairly open that it has a, a weaker understanding of how uh, a rundown effect, broader financial conditions. I think it's relatively opaque for households and for markets too about what different speeds and degrees of tightening from the balance sheet side due to, to activity and inflation on different horizons. So I think very much it's going to want to use its short-term interest rates as its key signal around where the direction of policy is going. But definitely we should, have, we, we should expect the Fed to start, I think, relatively soon, probably in the second half of the year, winding down that, that enormous balance sheet doing so in a steady and predictable manner but doing so in a way that will in itself contribute to a broader tightening in in monetary and financial conditions. So that'll be a little tightening that it's doing sort of just in a consistent and predictable manner which goes alongside its, its increases in interest rates.
0: Right. Consistent and predictable is definitely what markets would prefer from their central bankers. So outside the US then, Luke, what's your expectation in terms of the Bank of England? Are you expecting substantial rate rises in the coming year? How are you thinking about that?
1: Sure, well, the bank has already started, right? So the first interest rate increase went through in December when Omicron was sort of still raging, which I think probably gives you some sense of sort of where the bank's priorities and thinking is at this point, which is to say, you know, inflation prioritization over sort of playing it safe on the public health maybe this is a big downturn that that sort of thinking didn't seem to hold much weight at all and they wanted to tighten and then that was followed up uh, in the meeting just last week with another 25 basis point increase so interest rates are now at half a percent and I think what was quite striking about that meeting was less the decision to keep on tightening that was largely expected but the there were four of the nine policymakers who voted for a 50 basis point increase, a half a percent increase rather than the quarter of percent that we got. And pretty much no one in the market was expecting that. So that would have come as quite a sudden shock. And sort of a lot of central banking recently has all been about managing expectations and helping uh, investors to understand what their reaction function is to sort of guide financial conditions to where um, central banks thinks are appropriate to meet their target so this sort of sudden shock do a very large increase that the market's not expected that that isn't really or hasn't been in the playbook for a while so again sort of speaks to sort of the degree of concern that some of them at least on the committee are feeling and this need to sort of really get out uh, ahead of this thing um, so my sense is it's still pretty unlikely that we'll get a single 50 basis point increase in any one meeting. But we do just now have to be alert to the possibility of that. I think the banks clearly put it on the table as a policy option, even if not a base case one. And instead, we just see several consecutive further interest rate increases from here over the next two meetings. So a further to 25 basis points, which would get us to 1%. And 1% is quite interesting in a UK context because the Bank of England has explicitly said that that's the point where they'll be prepared to consider starting to actively sell the assets on its balance sheet and run down QE in that way, the process that James was talking about with regards to the US then. So I, I think when that process starts, that will cause something of a pause in the hiking cycle whilst they make sure that, know the market's able to digest this process of shrinking the balance sheet and that that doesn't exert more tightening of financial conditions than they want but the risks are much as james described there i think very much to the upside and that they find that you know they get to one percent they start qt and still they haven't done enough and so it's definitely possible that you get further interest rate increases this year. And, and that, that mm-hmm. as I say, is very much the direction of risks, I think.
0: No, that's again, super, super clear. And d- I think definitely possible. Um, it's probably a mantra that uh, us as economists tend to, <laughs> tend to lean on a little. In terms of then finally the ECB, because I think one of the biggest surprises, you know, in the last, I mean, number of weeks has just been around growing expectations around the ECB potentially tightening this year so how likely do you think it is that that the ecb tighten and should investors be concerned about this is it really significant given the concerns over the past you know financial the post financial crisis era around the japanization of europe and now we're talking about the ecb potentially raising rates
1: yeah, I mean, it, it's clearly a, a growing risk. And as you say, it's interesting in that for a long time, you know, there was this sense that, OK, the Bank of England, the Fed are going to start tightening. But don't worry, the ECB, the European Central Bank, is still in that bucket with the Bank of Japan. that It's hard to see any interest rate increases over your forecast horizon. And then it was OK, maybe, you know, the ECB isn't quite Japan, but it's still a very long way behind the Fed and the Bank of England. And increasingly, you know, the the direction of travel is very much that the ECB is moving or being dragged, perhaps is a better way of saying it, given the inflation outcomes, um, closer and closer towards that Bank of England Fed camp where they're actually going to have to do something relatively soon. I mean, the the latest signalling from President Lagarde at, at the last ECB meeting did sound more hawkish than I think some were expecting. On sort of current ECB plans, they're still going to be doing QE until basically the end of this year. And they'd signal that they wouldn't increase interest rates uh, until they finish the QE process. So if you take that at face value, then perhaps there is an increase until 2023. But I think increasingly the risk and the concern is that at the March meeting, they have to reassess that the QE gets ended quicker or at least certain parts of the QE package ECB in its uh, rather peculiar setup has like two or three different QE packages that it that it runs that are all under slightly different rules. But th- this particular package that came in through the pandemic, they would, they would end that earlier and then that would create space this calendar year to potentially raise rates. So I think it would be the signal that investors are looking for from the March meeting is whether they're going to speed up or indeed you know, just rapidly end their um, asset purchase program. And if that were to be the case, I think increasingly we'd have to we'd have to consider the possibility of interest rate hikes this year. We're not at that point yet, but that seems to be the direction of travel.
0: Sure, sure. Absolutely understood. And then finally, we have obviously left off the Bank of Japan in this context. I mean, should we, if if the markets start to talk more seriously about a BOJ rate hike, I mean, should we take that as a sign that the apocalypse is coming when it comes to the inflation environment?
1: Uh, the apocalypse might be a, a little bit too strong, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, like for all the inflation has, uh, has definitely been a lot more than others. And indeed, we have been expecting the last year or so. I think the kind of inflation environment that would be necessary for the Bank of Japan to find itself in this situation is very hard to foresee at this point. And, you know, frankly, the Bank of Japan might think that's a nice problem to have, given right. where they've been the last 30 years.
0: Sure. Sure. finally finally, they get a bit of a break. So I'm afraid that is all the time we've got for this week, but thanks so much to James and Luke for your insights, for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you back on in a number of months to see how many of those predictions worked out and and where the changes came through. Next week we're gonna be exploring Russia-Ukraine tensions and what they mean for investors. So please do join us then.